the Double Loop Podcast. Out here now for 10 years, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Like I said, Glenn, 10 years in, it, it's <laughs> crazy to think about. Let's Before we get into some more information about uh, our anniversary, why don't you uh, take us around the world? All right. Our where in the world segment, <laughs> W-H-O-R-L-D. So the country that I'm referring to today, these are facts about the country. Uh, the first one, and this one just kind of I thought was cute. The Hawaiian pizza was actually invented there, not Hawaii. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't know that. Actually, I think I know it just off of this one. I, oh, that's I, fantastic! I, I think I happen to know that that little fact. So okay, yeah. keep going. Yeah, I, I sometimes will throw in little trivia bits. I think you know Eric might know this because <laughs> he is a little bit of a trivia buff. All right. Uh, this country did not have an official national flag until 1956, which is pretty surprising. Uh, they eat more mac and cheese in this country, or as they call it, craft dinner, than any other country in the world. Yeah. They, they have the longest continuous highway in the world at nearly 5,000 miles. It is a monarchy. And Vikings were the first Europeans to discover it, particularly Norwegian Vikings, and they have more Sons of Norway lodges than any other country. Sons of Norway is a big thing here in Minnesota. We have a you know very Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish background in Minnesota. So oh yeah, have uh, a lot of towns in Minnesota have sister towns in Norway or Sweden, and lots of oh, cool. you know, Sons of Norway lodges or happenings here. I assume you know what it is. I've got one more for you, uh, but I think you already know what it is. But yeah. the last one was they had a war in the 17th century called the Beaver Wars. I recommend not Googling the Beaver Wars. And uh, the, the beaver is their national animal. I am referring to? Oh, Canada. Oh, Canada. Yes. I had Canada on my mind because I watched... Strange Brew the other day. Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I had not seen Strange Brew since I was a kid. Uh, although I love this. When I was looking for it, uh, there were commentary under it. And one of my favorite comments about the movie, it was just simply was, best Canadian documentary ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So first backing up for anyone who's listening, Strange Brew is an 80s comedy starring Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. Uh, it's extended. It was a movie that came from a sketch on a TV show called uh, SCTV. And uh, do you know how that sketch got started? I do. I did learn this. This was really surprising. I learned that from Red Letter Media. Oh, okay. There, that makes sense. I think they, that's maybe why why I heard about it too. But do tell the story. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah. So the um, the, the SCTV was sind- you know was filmed up in Canada. It had you know, John Candy and. And uh, like the dad from American Pie, like all these Eugene guys Levy. that Eugene Levy, uh, all these people that you know, these comedians that have been in things you know, that you've seen in movies for decades now. Just an amazing set of performers, and it got syndicated over here into the U.S. And I believe that there was there was like a difference in like the length of the episode would run. Right, because of commercials, there was a two minute difference. So the Canadian broadcasting company, which there's a whole thing in Canada where so, so a certain percentage of everything on TV, everything on the radio, like just all this content has to be from Canadian artists or somehow Canadian specific. 
It's how they kind of resist just becoming the 51st state, I guess. <laughs> so there's a lot of coverage you'll hear on the radio up there sung by a Canadian artist of a song that, that you, know, you would never just hear on American radio. And uh, so they said, hey, makes an extra two minutes sketch in each episode that is specifically Canada. So they're like, like, what do you want? Like just a couple of guys, you know, drinking beer and talking about hockey and calling each other hosers. And so that's just basically what they did as just kind of like a joke. And it became one of the best uh, skits that they did. So, yeah, it was just filler. And they just put every outrageous Canadian stereotype into those two minutes. And it became a hit. And as you yep. said, I mean, Hollywood Hollywood fell in love with it. They had a song as well, and it progressed into a movie. And it's a it's a very silly, wacky movie from the 80s. It oh, is very not silly. by any means a masterpiece. But I <laughs> I hadn't seen it since I was a kid, and I was still laughing. I, there were some oh, really good laugh-out-loud moments. And my uh, on my Christmas playlist every year, I have to include from Bob and Doug McKenzie, the stars of, uh, or the characters in Strange Brew, the uh, the 12 days of beer. Um, oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> love, love that song. <laughs> anyway, we, we got way off topic. It's a, you bring up a movie and then that's, that's an easy way to get me off topic. Well, we do have a lot of Canadian listeners, so they probably appreciated that their, their own history lesson that they're probably, <laughs> that they learn in elementary school anyway. You know, outside of the U S Canada is the place I've kind of been the most. Um, I hmm, overall spent uh, just about six months, uh, in total uh, in Canada, way before getting into forensics, uh, working on doing some like, industrial jobs in Quinell, British Columbia, hmm. which is pretty far north. It's just not quite up to Prince George, but almost there. And then a few months in uh, Red Deer, Alberta, which is about halfway between uh, Calgary and Edmonton. So yeah, definitely learned a lot about Canada just from being there and watching TV and and just a little kind of, you know, quirks of, of it's, it's like where I grew up, but not quite, not quite. And it's cold. All right. So thank you, Glenn, for, for that one. That was a fun one for me. And I just want to uh, also bring up a, a patreon.com where if you want to you know, help contribute to our, our little podcast here, you can uh, search for the double loop podcast on patreon.com and send a couple bucks our way, help pay for hosting of the website and hosting of all these files and, you know, uh, a lot of the other stuff that we do, you know, also helping uh, us get to the II conference each year now, getting new equipment uh, when we need new equipment. But for, at the II conference, you know, helping just even spread the word even further, introducing the show to people that have still sometimes never heard of it. Shocking. <laughs> Scandalous. It does happen. It does happen. I think more often, though, I meet people that recognize my voice more than uh, more than my face. And like I said at the beginning, in our 10-year anniversary, we started recording all this in August of 2013. Oh, boy. My youngest was like in first grade, I think. And now she's getting you know, a license here soon. It's been an amazing ride. And Glenn, I've pulled together some, some data from our, our podcast host. Uh, and want to just kind of share some information about kind of where we've come over these past uh, 10 years. All right. That sounds fun. So we, we ha haven't really talked about number of plays, all-time plays recently. And, you know, I used to give you updates on that every once in a while for one reason or another that kind of fell by the wayside. So I wanted to see if, if you could, you know, just, you know, dart at the board. How many, how many plays do you think we've had all-time uh, over the past 10 years? You know, I 
I'm just going to shoot for the moon and go a million. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not quite there, but uh, no, right. uh, that's, you know what, though? You're, you're off by less than a magnitude of difference. So that's you know, usually a, a fair way to judge a guess. It's pretty good. We've gotten past 350,000 views over these uh, over these past 10 years. So usually an episode, uh, after it's been up for a couple months, kind of settles in on around between 2,000 and 3,500 plays. Uh, so that's you know, kind of a rough, just general estimate of how many people might be listening out there. Podcasts are really notoriously hard to judge that because, you know, some people have it set up to automatically download, but they never actually listen to it. Uh, you know, that it's, it's hard to judge, but that's just what the, our numbers say. And we have you know, many hundreds of downloads from, uh, well, thousands from uh, the U.S., but, you know, that's not surprising based that's where we're both based out of, but also Canada, Australia, the UK, Germany, Sweden, Ireland, New Zealand, Denmark, Norway, Switzerland, the Netherlands, France, Brazil, Taiwan, Mexico, Poland, Vietnam, Japan, Spain, South Africa, Finland, Singapore, India, and Italy, and many, many more countries. So it's just amazing how many people out there have, have stumbled across one way or another uh, our little podcast. That's pretty cool. Our most popular episodes um, ha over the past year have been the ones that we had covering uh, Alan McNamara's case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the uh, the all time you know, most listened to or downloaded episodes uh, include the ones on the staircase, mm. uh, the one that we did on aging late latent prints. Um, mm. There's few, we discussed a few articles looking at the breakdown of fatty components uh, as a way to possibly estimate that. It's kind of our, our wrap up to the series on activity level uh, topics. And then uh, uh, one of our first uh, Making a Murderer episode, uh, also a uh, big downloader. You know, I wanted to, you know, also, you know, say that we, we really couldn't do all this without all of you out there listening. Uh, but For also sure. in particular, huge special thanks to a few people. Uh, first to Becca Kutant, who has done so much for us over the past years with our, our social media accounts, running the fingerprint interest group uh, newsletter now, and now coming out to the, the booth, uh, manning that at the IAI conference, huge port, port part of, of our team and, you know, letting us yes. do what we do here. Yes. Thank you. Also huge thanks to Michael White, who is doing a much better job with webpage than I ever did in the past. <laughs> and I'm very thankful for, for his work uh, on that. It's, it's, it, it's so fantastic because it's just it just happens on its own. You know, Michael just kind of takes care of it, and we don't yeah, even have to great. worry or you know any. It's just so great to to not have to worry about that whole part of things. And also want to thank uh, a few friends. You know, we have a group of friends that that you know we definitely rely on for help with topics and ideas and just kind of bouncing things off. So to Carrie Hall, Brianne Breedlove, Josh Connolly, and Jack Flanders. Thank you guys also very much for all that you do to help us put on this show. Yes. Thanks, Eric, for going through all of that. And uh, yes, uh, big thanks to all those people. Uh, and again, as you said, especially Becca and Michael uh, for all of their incredible technical help with the episodes. All right, Glenn, let's move into the, uh, the main topic for the episode. It's one of the, hey, Eric, I'll just uh, tell you some things and get your reaction kind of episodes. So, right, um, right. Yeah. yeah, you didn't have to do a whole lot of prep. That was the whole point was I had some stories to relay to you <laughs> that I exactly. thought I would just share with you that I've been holding back for a long time. But let me share them with you, get your 
instant reaction, your genuine reaction, because you haven't heard these, and then right, right. why don't we just record that while we're doing an episode? Exactly. No, I love, I love these. Like you said, not a whole lot of prep needed. So right. go ahead and take, a, take it away. So I wanted to sit down and talk to you about a couple of cases that I had somewhat recently that were surprising to me because they were unusual testimony things. And I just thought listeners might benefit from hearing about these. And I'm sure many listeners who are forensic scientists and who do testify probably have their own similar stories. But these are kind of the stories that you don't hear about in the classroom. You know, in the classroom, you, you kind of get taught well, here's what happens. You walk into the courtroom, you get sworn in, you sit down, you answer these <laughs> questions. This is how it goes. I mean, you have this kind of rhythm, and that is 99% of my cases. But I had two rather unusual ones just this year that were surprising. And just to sort of share this with listeners, I have now testified about 75 times. And it turns out that what is so surprising to me is I know that most fingerprint examiners working for a government laboratory, if they're just on average, are probably testifying maybe two to three times a year, maybe. Now, in some agencies where they do priors or they do, you know, roll and identify in the courtroom, they're probably going a lot more. And when I say priors, they're looking at background history. And I realize that some temperant agencies or pawn slips, like they may be going all the time. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the average latent print examiner working for a government lab going on a case where they've particularly usually identified someone is unusual. And uh, if you do go, you tend to go more on negative prints, meaning I didn't find hmm. anything and now I need to explain to jurors why I didn't find anything. But 75 times in, in, in 23 years of doing this. And here's what's interesting, Eric. Half of those have come since I left the government agency. I've been testifying <laughs> more in the last few years than I've ever testified in my career. I'm now testifying about once a month. That, I, don't, I don't know if other people are experiencing this, but wow. it could just be, of course, my role as a private examiner that when an attorney calls me, I mean, the case is already probably going to trial, so it's right. a biased sample by the time they're calling me. But is I was just surprised at how much more I'm going since I went private. I'm I'm actually kind of not super surprised you know, that. So, like, how many how many cases did you testify in when you were still at BCA? Yeah, that would have been around forty. Forty, okay, and then so about. And now 35 or so since since you left. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, it, and that would be in five years. So I've right. had I had 40 in 18 years, and I'm, and then I've had another almost 40 in just five years. Wow. I, but like like you said, I think that's that is you know partly that that pre-selection first thing that's more likely to go to trial. Uh, that's where your focus is. You know, just by nature of being uh, an independent contractor as opposed to doing the daily grind of, uh, of cases in the lab. Sure. Now, the next interesting thing is most of my, the work that comes to me as a private examiner tends to be from defense, and most of my testimony, you know, the 40 in the last five years, have been for defense cases. Mm. However, both cases that I'm about to talk about, I was working for the prosecution. Okay. It wasn't like I was being treated necessarily differently. They were just bizarre circumstances, and in both cases— there were unusual judges in the case. Got it. All right. So the first one I was going to tell you about is, is fairly quick. 
I was testifying for the government in Washington, D.C. on a case that I had worked. And it was a fairly straightforward case, although like many cases that I work either for prosecution or defense, I don't try to learn too much about the case background or details of the case. Particularly, right. sometimes I'll, I'll show up at, at trial. I don't even know what the guy's been charged with. And so this case that I, I went to go testify on, I had sort of worked out from some from some of the instructions that the judge gave right before I got on the stand and a couple of other things that I had thought going into it, it might have been a homicide case, but it turned out it was a weapons case. Uh, so a okay. uh, felon in possession of a firearm. Not that it would have changed anything, but it, it turns out that's actually a little bit critical to what I'm going to talk about in a moment. But I didn't know that till I was literally getting on the stand. And just before I walked into the courtroom, the prosecutor had pulled me aside and said, you know, the, the judge is kind of hurrying us along a little bit. Uh, don't let that necessarily throw you off too much. But, you know, if you if you feel me uh, going a little bit faster or skipping over some things, just so you know, she's urged uh, or encouraged us to be a little faster. And I said, yeah, OK, sure. That happens all the time. <laughs> so, so then I get on the stand. I'm sworn in. I start going through my the basic stuff. Now, I always it just in any case where there's fingerprint evidence that, you know, is, is going to be useful to especially jurors, I do a presentation and I and will I will encourage the attorney that I'm working for. Let's do a presentation. Let's show the jurors what the evidence looks like. I can use some pictures. Some of this gets a little complicated and technical. So let me show some images and uh, try to walk it through a little more visually. So I had done a presentation. And I started going through the, I showed what friction ridge skin was and what known prints are and what latent prints are. And I've got a rhythm to it and these basic questions. I'm only about maybe 10 minutes into the background here. And, uh, you know, um, I start, one of the questions was, are there characteristics that fingerprint examiners rely upon? Yes. There's something called level one detail, level two detail, and level three detail. Then the next question was, well, can you tell us about level one detail? Sure, that's the flow of the ridges, which usually translates to a pattern type. There are three major pattern types, loops, whorls, and arches. Okay, great. Yep. What What's second level detail? Well, this is the path of the ridges, and that usually translates to something called minutia. That's where the ridges end and stop or split. And, and at that point, the judge kind of cut me off a little bit and she turned, you know, to the the prosecutor and said, "You know, I don't think any of these jurors are going to be getting degrees in fingerprints. Uh, can we move this along a little bit?" And I was like, "Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> she's she's not that interested in the background of fingerprints." Okay. I had sat through her jury instruction, which was unusual. Usually, I don't hear jury instruction. I happened to be in the courtroom, and she sort of stopped me and then gave them instructions, which was, you know. If he's qualified as an expert, you know, you can treat his opinion as an expert opinion. Uh, however, you know, it's up to you to decide how much weight to put on it and whether or not, you know, he's believable or not or credible and kind of the basic instruction there. And here we were just kind of going through the background, wanting jurors to understand the evidence I was about to give them. And, you know, she's like, yeah, let's let's move this along. I'll, I'll come back to that in a little bit. So I'm like, fine. And then so I kind of look at the prosecutor to see how he wants to move along a little bit. And what I started doing at that point was just giving shorter answers for the next couple of slides. He seemed to be going at his pace where he went, well, is there something called third level detail? Yeah, that usually represents the shapes of the ridges or possibly the position of sweat pores. 
Okay. Now I'm going a little bit faster. And then he starts showing like the ACE V methodology and he starts to want to go through like each step of ACE V. You know, I said, yeah, it's a four step methodology. And I just kind of left it at that. And he's like, well, tell us about analysis. And I heard the judge at that point go, <sighs> <laughs> Okay. This is in my my right ear as I'm looking at the jurors, and I'm like, oh boy, oh this is getting uncomfortable. <laughs> All right, uh, so I'm trying to give real short answers at this point, and because the big thing was we're going to show the identification at some point, and we're going to be walking the jurors through this. And I knew that I kind of wanted to get there to sort of show them the basis for my conclusions. Then my next slide, my next two slides were gyro slides and he wanted to go through gyro. And I, boy, I was really trying, you know, I was basically going gyro. Yeah, that's documentation. And then just, you know, just shutting up like, yep, that's, that's how we document and not explaining what it was. And I started feeling this pressure to you know, move things along a little bit because I could really feel the eyes, you know, staring in the back of my head here. And then he starts getting into the evidence. And then we start showing the actual latent print and the known print, which is the identification. Now, there's an ident I think there are th maybe three IDs in the Take it back. There was, there was one ID. There's one ID on, this, on the magazine of the gun was what it was. And I'm demonstrating it, and I do rainbow ridges, which is a way of coloring the ridges and demonstrating the identification in PowerPoint. And as I start going through this, the judge just sort of stops it. And she's like, counselors, uh, up here at the bench. And and I can hear her, like, over, you know how they put the little static on? And yeah. so the, the static's supposed to cover it so the jurors can't hear? But I can hear all of it. Yeah, the static just means pretend that you can't hear what we're saying. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and it's only two feet from my ear, so I can hear the prosecutor just getting reamed out. And she's like, look, I, just get to his opinion. Just... Just haven't haven't you know explained what his conclusion was, and then can we move on from there? I and mean, this is taking way too long, and I'm just sitting there going, "Oh my god!" I mean, I've never never really experienced this. This is the basis for my opinion. I'm trying to explain what data that I use to reach my conclusion, so that jurors would find my opinion credible, right? And which was part of her instruction. And she's like, "Let's just move on." What became very clear to me was what she wanted him to do was qualify your witness tell us what he looked at tell us his conclusions everything else can just be handled on cross that's what she had wanted that's really what she she wanted this to be 10 minutes of testimony i mean if you're getting into it sometimes it's just there's just so many terms that you need to introduce i've had attorneys like not go through like the order of questions that you know that we've kind of agreed upon ahead of time right and as certain questions come up it, you know, it builds where you then you're, you find yourself using terms and then having to like pause and parenthetically kind of go in, okay, that's what this means, just so that they can understand like the words that you're saying. Uh, sure. Much less the basis for and opinion. And understand maybe even what the basis for the conclusion was. Well, and, yeah. and even if they don't understand it, even if they don't get it, there is a legal foundation here that you have to right. establish. You have to establish the foundation under 702, a very important ruling here in the U.S., explaining the reliability of the data and everything be behind that conclusion. And this is this is important legal foundational stuff. And as you and I both know, there were cases that have been overturned where the government didn't take that time to establish yeah. the foundation or couldn't answer questions about the foundation. We were establishing that clearly for the record. 
And this wasn't like it had been going on for hours. I was only on the stand at this point for maybe, maybe 20 minutes, including Jeez. qualification questions. So this, this wasn't extensive. And I felt like this was an important part of the testimony was showing them how, you know, how I applied the methodology, specifically to the latent print in this case. Right. Okay. So then when he goes back, I mean, I can tell, I'm just looking at him. He, you know, he looks a little flustered. He looks a little angry. He, you know, this is his case. And I'd never seen a judge be so active and basically, you know, just kind of trying to control how he was handling his witness. And at, at this point, he does start to move a little bit faster, but he didn't change that much. Like, he really didn't. I mean, he just kind of stuck to his guns and going, you know, I, I, I know what I need to do here, and we're going to go through this. So, and he did tell her, you know, we just have a few more slides, which was true. After we got through the conclusion, we just sort of established what it was. And then at some point when he said, so your conclusion was, and I said, yes, it was identified to, I don't know, the right thumb of, of the defendant. At that point, he paused for a second, and he had a co-counsel. And I think he kind of turned to the co-counsel, you know, see if co-counsel had any questions. And uh, I think he said something like, you know, you're on just a second. I just want to confer with, with co-counsel here. And I'd never seen this before. She just cut him off and said, you know what? No, that, that's done. If there's anything you need to address, you can just do it after cross. And she just wouldn't, she just cut him off. She was like, you're done. You're done with this witness. I had never seen that before. That's bizarre. Yeah. It, have you ever heard of anything like that? I mean, it, it makes me want to ask, like, what's going on <laughs> earlier in this case with, like, <laughs> you know, other witnesses? Um, or what what history does this judge and this prosecutor have? But Because that just does not seem at all normal. Yeah. I thought it was bizarre, and I had the same question, like, what did I walk into? I mean, he had enough prescience to mention to me before I got on the stand, but thankfully it gave me a little bit of a warning because I was yes. just, wow, what what is happening here? I, I'd never seen a judge basically just end the direct examination and go, look, if you got other stuff, you can bring it up later. Uh, and she just turned it all over, to, you know, for to the defense attorney, who got up, and he was kind of smiling, He's like, I just have a couple of questions. And it's true. He, he knew he was going to be fast, and he kind of got right to the point. Now, here's the point of this. He went right to, okay, uh, he, he didn't say this, but it basically he said, yeah, fine. It's, it's, yeah, it's his, it's his fingerprint, but how long can a fingerprint last on a surface? And I said, well, you know, yep. on some surfaces, if left undisturbed, can sit on a surface or rest on a surface indefinitely and uh, especially if it's protected in some way or depending on the environment yeah there's really no way to tell how long and they can actually last on a service for a very long time and then that's when he asked the critical question he said so it could have been on there for over a year correct I said, yes well i think he said something like a couple of months yes um i said or or longer and he said so easily over a year and i said well it's i said it's possible over a year as it turned out in that jurisdiction i think he became a felon a year ago. Mm. And it turned out, and I didn't know this at the time until I left the stand, because when I was leaving the stand, I was thinking to myself, I sure hope prosecution has other evidence besides just this fingerprint. Because because here's an instance where I didn't know any case details, and I kind of wish I had known this, because I might have been able to, I mean, I, I wouldn't have said anything else, but maybe I could have helped him and prepare for the eventuality that, you know, they're going to focus on the length of time. And if we're just talking about a year here, especially on a magazine, sure, it could easily be on a magazine for over a year. Uh, sure. 
Yeah. And if that if yeah. that's when he became a felon, yeah, it doesn't necessarily establish that he had possession once he became a felon, if he had touched the gun at some other time. Yeah, um, possession or like prohibited possessor kind of cases are, are kind of weird because for any other case, right, like a burglary or a homicide, right, if it's not this guy, then it's got to be somebody else, right? That, that's mm, right. A, a crime occurred and the crime was committed by like somebody. But for a prohibited possessor case, it's, you know, the crime, like and the evidence can kind of get like mixed up, right? So if you have someone like that touched the surface, like, and then that is like evidence of possibly touching or possessing a firearm, then that is the crime. And if they didn't touch or if they touched it too far in the past, then there's just no crime. Right. So it's, it's a little bit kind of a different situation than just the normal type of casework that, that comes through. Right. And in this case, once I started learning again on the stand, it was all real time. Like, oh, okay. The prosecutor might be relying solely on the fingerprint here. But I was started thinking, boy, I sure hope there's another witness who testified mm. that he saw the defendant with the gun. Or maybe there's a social media post where it might be his hand or someone or his post, you know, with a gun at a certain time. And you're sure. going to try to tie these circumstantial things together. Uh, I think the fingerprint was the only f the only evidence that they were really presenting here, other than when they found the gun and where they found the gun and like whose room it was and some locational stuff. But it doesn't mean that he couldn't have handled the gun at some point in the past. Right. Interesting. What I began to wonder is maybe the judge sort of knew that. Maybe the judge had looked at the case and knew that this is all it's going to come down to. And so there's no reason, now I'm making excuses for the judge and her bizarre behavior. Maybe she knew all that. Maybe she had already kind of predicted the, you know, where this was going, that it's just going to come down to how long can fingerprints last on surfaces? Okay, you know, and maybe maybe she even knew that. Maybe she had had yeah. her fingerprint evidence before. It was very weird. Uh, I It was really uncomfortable. After he just asked that question, once he got out from me, that sure, it could be on a surface for over a year, I think they went back maybe on direct or redirect for one or two other questions that, and they might have had to do with again how long fingerprints last on surfaces, which the answers were, as as you mentioned in our activity level episodes, we really can't say. I mean, that's just not something we can really opine on here. Um, right. I can tell you who's who's print, but I really can't tell you when or how it got there. You know, not it was not in this case with limited information. Right. And that was really it. And I don't think I, I think defense didn't even have any recross. He got what he wanted. I was off that stand. You know, I think the entire thing probably took 30 minutes, which was unusually short. I'm usually on the stand for sure. 45 minutes to an hour. It felt short, and then I found out a day or two later that, yeah, he was acquitted. And maybe the judge saw that coming ahead of, ahead of the curve. I, it was very weird. I had never felt so rushed from a judge before. So, Glenn, um, you know, interesting thing to consider. I, I think question for you then is, you know, if you find yourself in that situation again at some point in the future, is there is there anything that you want to, like, take away from this time around as, like, Hey, I, you know, I wish I would have done something slightly differently. I mean, you can't predict what that kind of, you know, unexpected situation in court ahead of time. But like, if all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of it again, would you want to do anything differently next time around? Great question. Because the, the thing that really lasted in my mind was, and as you know, I mean, I, I will use a lot of blind verification and I do like to sort of, especially in more high-profile cases, sort of 
not engage too much in a lot of the background of the case. Right. This is an instance, though, where I'd already reached my conclusions. Nothing really would have changed. It would have been helpful knowing a few more facts about this case only mm. because I could have warned the prosecutor about this impending thing because he, I don't think he realized it. And uh, he and I did talk afterwards a little bit, and I told him this is this is not unusual. I actually run into this quite a bit. Most of the acquittals that I've testified in have been weapons cases where the only evidence was either, you know, fingerprint and or DNA, and that doesn't necessarily necessarily establish possession within this time frame of being a felon. So I wasn't terribly surprised he was acquitted because that's seems to be the most acquittals I've ever been involved in have been exactly these kinds of things. You know, jurors seem, just in, in my select cases, have been hesitant to seem to convict just based on fingerprint necessarily, or even if there was DNA as well, because it's the same issue. Sure. Okay. I can't imagine what to do differently once you're on the stand. Yeah, no, that's that's an interesting thing to consider of that, that pre, those pretrial discussions with the attorney yeah, kind of getting into more detail as to okay, what's going on and, and you know, what's the situation, especially if it's to the point where the report's already written and that's all done. And now it's, right. it's you know, what what story are you looking to tell? And right. and then does this evidence that I've, that's in my report, does it support the story you're, you're hoping to tell? Because if it doesn't, then you know, I want to make sure that, that the attorney knows that. Sure. And, and, and I don't, in this case, I don't necessarily disagree with the jurors. I mean, I kind yeah. of tend to agree with their decision on this. Uh, it's just maybe prosecutors need more education about um, this, about, you know, the, the evidence needed to prove these sort of elements and that maybe understand some of the trends as, as well, that this is not just, it wasn't just the Washington, D.C. jurors or a metro a metropolitan jurors. I have seen the exact same outcome in rural Minnesota, uh, yeah. uh, in Florida, and, and, you know, plenty of other states where I've been involved in exactly these kinds of cases. Oh, absolutely. So uh, I, I've got a story here that, I don't know, maybe has somewhat similar themes, but much shorter and, and a little more lighthearted. I was recently testifying, and I think everyone has that same experience of, of once you testified a few times, you get to the courthouse when they tell you to get there, and then you wait, and you wait. And uh, so in this situation, you know, just sitting in the back room, you know, waiting, um, trying to get some other stuff done on my phone, and, you know, catching up on emails or whatever. And then finally, you know, they, you know, get you right on. And it's usually like right at the point where you've, you've kind of struck up a conversation with someone else that uh, might be back there about, I don't know, not about the case, but about, you know, weather, you know, travel, what part of the country, you know, people have seen stuff like that. And also, nope, I gotta go. So up to the stand, you know, getting through the, uh, you know, the background of you know, who I am and qualifications, all that stuff. And move into the, the same, I do the same kind of thing. Try to have a slide deck up so that the, the questions go along with the slides. And then I have this, these images, since this is such a visual thing that we're talking about, uh, to describe what I'm talking about. Right. And, you know, get kind of just going. It's, it's taken a little bit longer than what you were describing. Probably about, you know, 45 um, minutes in, maybe an hour. And the judge calls a break for lunch. All right. So... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is the worst. We break for lunch. And uh, so then, you know, it's usually like, 
hour and a half uh, for lunch. So everyone can go out, get something, come back. And usually there's some other discussions with the attorneys and the judge right when they get back. And anyway, so I finally get back on and finish up, you know, going through all the intro stuff and maybe another half an hour of, of that. I think the timelines are all right. Uh, it seems like a long time just to go through intro stuff. But um, uh, I literally, the, the, the prosecutor literally said, all right, um, now let's move into discussing the latent prints in this case. And at that moment, the judge interrupts and says, I just heard word that there is a, a tornado warning and uh, we're, everyone is going to be sent home for the day. <laughs> so I had to come all the way back again the next day and finish off that part of the testimony. Luckily, turned it over to defense. Defense, no cross. All right. <laughs> oh. And you weren't testifying locally, right? Like you were out of town for this. I Yeah, no, I was out of t- uh, traveling out of town. Did you have to like extend your hotel, extend, change your flight and all that too then? Sort of, because there was the tornado war- you know, warning, all the flights had already been canceled. So oh. uh, I'd already over lunch worked out that I was going to have to stay an extra night anyway. So, you know, I was a little grumpy about all that, but it's no one's fault. <laughs> yeah, it's just just the, the weather. And as I was walking around, you know, going out to, to walk into a restaurant to get dinner that night, I mean, it had rained a little bit, but uh, not not... Definitely not a like a Texas tornado or anything, but I don't know. Maybe other parts of of the area had gotten stronger winds, but at least in the downtown area where the courthouse was, it wasn't like there was a whole lot of of um, damage or destruction. So it, you know, it's more of the abundance of caution kind of uh, thing. But mm-hmm. uh, but still, <laughs> a a frustrating experience to to have to extend a trip, stay there extra time. And have your testimony, you know, cut up and chopped up into these pieces. It's just, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You just have to understand that it's a part of what happens and and be ready for that possibility. Yeah, I I find that when I get on the stand, especially if we're shooting for the morning, you know, be, be here at 9, we're going to start at 9.30, of course. Yeah, that all happens. And then they want to sneak another witness on before you. Yep. And then I don't get on the stand until now, noon, 11.30. And then what invariably happens is I get through my direct, and then even if there's not going to be any cross or limited cross, judge wants a break for lunch. And I hate the lunch break after direct but before cross because at this point now, defense has all lunch hour to look you up look up everything you just said and then if they hadn't already you know been really prepared i mean they could come back now with you know, whatever you know whatever they're just going to be more prepared because you've got everything out and they have now 90 minutes to go do their homework and come right. back with a, you know, some challenging yeah, questions true. i hate that lunch break right in the middle there and i get it all the time uh, another short story here of of that whole waiting in the back so this is now boy eight ten years ago a long time ago was waiting in the hallway because there was no like little room in that the, the courthouse I happened to be in. There were just benches in the hallway and see people go in and people come out and I see it looks like everybody leaves and everybody goes back in. Everybody leaves again and it's just like you know what what's going on? And uh, for the first time everyone left, the prosecutor said, "Hey, you know they're they're dismissing the jury 
for a minute to, to talk just with the judge and the, uh, the attorneys. Okay. So, but, and I kind of figured that might, might've happened a couple times after waiting there for quite a while. I, uh, I kind of peek through the, try to peek in and see what's going on. <laughs> and that's the seam between the two doors, because there are two doors and there's always a little like quarter inch gap that I'll stick my nose right up to and kind of peek through. Is that what you're describing? Yep. Pretty much. There's nobody <laughs> in the courtroom. It was empty. So I started looking around, I'm like, where'd everybody go? They said, "Oh, um, the uh, the witness before you caused a mistrial. Everyone, everyone, everyone left. <laughs> Trial's no. over. No one told me." <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you mean? There's a mistrial? I... <laughs> oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. <laughs> You know, there, there's politely waiting your turn, and then there's know what's going on. At least working for a state department or a state agency, you tend to kind of get a feel for the different courts you go testify in and the different prosecutor's offices you work with, which ones work well with the witnesses and which ones tend to leave the witnesses in the dark a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that was a... A frustrating day. Well, and that wasn't as far a trial, but I was still driving, you know, across the state and back, uh, and and you know, ended up being just a whole waste of a day. Sure. Let's okay. So I'm guessing that the attorney, the it probably told you know the paralegal or the victim witness coordinator, hey, just you know, let everyone else know, or maybe they were just so stunned by it they just forgot to notify you. They literally <laughs> so, just. Forgot. I don't know. I don't know. It's also it's also the other thing that working in this field that I tell people, like when they ask kind of what what's it like being a, uh, you know, working as a forensic scientist or what was it like working for a crime lab? Uh, I say, you know, you gotta you gotta get to a point where you're okay with not knowing things, mm-hmm. yeah, not sure. knowing all the details of the case, not knowing how you know the verdict sometimes, not knowing how all these cases that you work on play out. Right. Uh, that's that's a be, good point. You have to be okay not knowing that. And if, if you're the type of person that says, no, I, I have to know like like how all these cases pled out or, you know, court or whatever investigation, like this this isn't going to work out for you because there's there's usually not a way to know. Uh, so, Yeah, um, that's, that's a great little fact for our lay people, even some of our attorney listeners. I mean, they probably don't realize that this is – I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say this, Eric – would it be fair to say that you don't know the outcome of 99% of the cases that you're involved in? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say that's about that's about right for me, too. 99% of the time, you don't know. I don't even usually send an email to the attorney saying, let me know how it went. The 1% where I know the outcome, they usually contacted me to let me know the exactly. outcome. Absolutely. That's exactly the, the case. Uh, there might be a couple of exceptions where where I reached out, sure. But this, you know, where the circumstances were like were a little different, or where I definitely knew because uh, just being involved uh, in the case, uh, you know, I had gone back to trial a second time after a hung jury, or you know, there's some exceptions like that that make it more likely that you'll you'll find out. But yeah, absolutely, most of the time you just have no idea. Well, in fact, the next case I'm going to talk about is exactly one of those cases where I did actually reach out to okay. prosecution to ask the outcome because I wanted to talk about it at some point, but I want to wait. I wanted to wait until 
it had been decided. And then I was still even unsure if I wanted to talk about it until it has gone through appeal and so forth. So I have a feeling I'm, I'm, I'm going to hold back a few details since I think it, it probably is going through an appeal process. But I also felt the need. I've been wanting to talk about this case for a long time because it was probably the most bizarre testimony I had ever been involved in. Okay. It's it's a very strange case. And I'm gonna hold back a bunch of other details and I'll try to shorten it, you know, for the, the sake of storytelling. It was a case that I was hired on, I think it was in twenty seventeen that I, I got asked to look at this. And it was a palm print from a vehicle. And there were two lifts, by the way, two lift cards. So they had done powder and lifts and it had come from the exterior of a vehicle. But I will tell you that boy, it was nasty. And it looked like it was wet. It looked like it was all broken up. They had done two lifts in the same area. So they had powdered it, made a lift, and then I think they had taken a second lift uh, from the same area. But what it turned out is that the two lifts actually had different information in it. One of the lifts had a, like a fold in the tape. So it didn't oh. properly capture th that little area. There was a void, uh, an absence of information in the lift. And so when they do the second lift, they get that area and some other information. And the clarity, how clear the image was, changed in the two. So I had to use both lifts in order to reach a conclusion. That's important because I'm going to mention a couple of uh, similarities to another case here that we're going to talk about. But it turned out that the image mattered in the case, which lift I was using, and I had to use certainly both lifts. Another thing was that this was one of the most distorted palm prints I had seen. This was a really difficult palm print, and I recognized that right away. So when I, when I get one of these bizarre, very challenging cases, I start invoking more rigorous ACEV procedures. And I'm, uh, you know, mm. I always do an analysis first, and certainly was doing that here. And I was selecting my features, you know, which features I found reliable in the latent print before going to the known print. And so I had done that, but I also knew I was going to have a verifier and that she was going to be blind in the case, a blind verifier for the case, and wouldn't know any case details or my conclusions. But one of the things I like to do in the most complex cases is do a consensus feature set. So I gave the latent print to her as well, both of the images. She used both. She selected her features, and before we ever did a comparison to the defendant in the case, we looked at which features we had marked during the analysis to try to figure out were we on the same page. And that way, if there were ones we had missed or ones not to consider, it would take away some of that noise and variability. And we both had marked over 30 points in the palm. But here's what's interesting, Eric. I probably only had four or five green, I want to say, out of okay. those 30. Most, the majority were yellow, and half of them, or sorry, a third of them were probably red. And you know I don't use a yep. lot of red, but yep. I was using a lot of red. Out of 30, uh, yeah, I think it was like 32 points in the analysis, probably four green, 20 yellow, and the rest, you know, I don't know, whatever that is, 12 or 13 red. That's that's the kind of palm print we're talking about here. Tons of uncertainty, but it was nice because Absolutely. she had a number of those features as well. And in fact, I think of the thirty some I had marked, she probably had you know thirty of those plus more, uh, and some other ones that for me to take a look at and to consider. So it was very helpful. Going all right, at least these features we're agreeing on before looking at the known prints. I look at the known print, found all of those features, and pretty much every one except for one red, found all of them in known print, found a few more orange, 
during the comparison, found a couple more features. I think I ended up with 35 or 36 in the end. Then when I gave it to her, I gave her the defendant's prints and then two other palm prints from people who had nothing to do with the case, like a lineup and sort of randomize them. Sure. And she reached the same conclusion. So in the end of it, we had both identified this, but both agreed this is really complex. Yes, there's a lot of features here, but it's not it's not clear information and that this is really challenging. And yes, it meets the threshold for an ID, but this was not a slam dunk. This is not an easy one. And we had done all of these things and we didn't know a single fact about the case. Like I didn't even know what he was being charged with. Uh, oh, I take that back. I think I knew it was... I think he was being charged with homicide, and maybe that was all I knew, and maybe not even at the time of the exam, and and that was that was it. I, I really didn't even know why we were being hired, since this was another state. We were being hired by the prosecutor in the case, and you know I hmm. didn't know why they weren't using either local examiners or anybody else. You know I I didn't know those details. So then, write the report and go in to testify. Right, except when we wrote the report in 2017. We got a subpoena in 2018. It got continued. We got a subpoena in oh. 2019. <laughs> it got continued. Got a subpoena in 2020, uh, but it got delayed because of some event going what on. What was uh, going on in 2020? <laughs> right. I, I did get a text from a listener who had gone back and listened to an episode. I think you got the same text <laughs> who, who was listening to an, an early episode of ours in 2020, where Glenn said <laughs> at the beginning of 2020, hey, 2020 is looking pretty good. It's shaping up to be a great year. <laughs> it's all your fault, Glenn. You did this. Oh, irony. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. And then we got a subpoena in 2021, and it got delayed. And then 2022, and it got delayed again. And then we finally got it for early 2023. Like It looks like it's finally happening. And then the day of that I'm flying out, and the verifier's flying out as well, too, mind you. Uh, the prosecutor wow. was going to bring both of us in. And that's unusual, but going to bring us both out. And so she's flying in from her state. I'm flying in from Minnesota. We're flying into this you know, state. It's on the East Coast. And... I get a call just as I'm, I'm literally picking up my keys to head out the door, and I get a call from the prosecution saying, nope, it's off. Defense called in sick today. I was like, what? Yeah, he, uh, he, uh, he's sick. He's not coming in. You're still calling uh, sick in court. <laughs> I, I, I'd never heard. I didn't know attorneys could call in sick once a trial had started. Now, this is the, this, this was crying in baseball. You know? <laughs> yeah, there were. We were going to be the last witnesses, and 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 literally, we were giving testimony on the last day of trial. And um, but basically, you know, we can't do it today. Uh, so it, he called in sick. So can you come out on this date or this date? I was like, oh, no, I can't. I had other things going on. So now they have to sort of delay it to the next week. And we're still going to be the last witnesses. But now it's up against some other event that I had going on. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I can come out for Thursday, give testimony, but I have to be back on Friday. I have to be back here on Friday because I had something else going on. They're like, yeah, okay, we can work that out. Like, All right. So then the following week, leave, go, get there. And when I get off the plane, there's a voicemail from the prosecutor in the case saying, um, so at the end of the day, this is like 5 p.m. I'm in the air, mind you. They knew I was coming. I'm in the air. I'm on the ground now. I listen to the voicemail and the prosecutor says, remember, this is the last day of trial. 
defenses decided to uh, to ask for a Daubert motion. I was like, a Daubert? So I called the prosecutor, and I'm like, a Daubert motion? In, in the middle of trial? Shouldn't that have been done before trial? It, so there's something <laughs> called a motion in limine, which means basically it, it needs to be done before trial. Or four years ago, maybe? Sure. So I didn't know if there was any indication or anything that he was going to you know, um, to file a motion or have a motion or was there, and the prosecutor was like, no, no, he asked for this at the end of the day. So the first thing tomorrow is the judge is going to decide whether or not we're going to have a Daubert hearing. And he said, are you prepared to do a Daubert hearing? And I said, yes, I am. That's not a problem. I'm just surprised that she's even entertaining this on the last day of trial and how do you squeeze all a whole daubert hearing in on the last day and finish off this testimony mm-hmm. exactly so now i'm beginning to think all right hold on is defense like doing all of this weird stuff knowing my schedule and is he is he screwing with mm. me is that what this is 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 that his game here is to basically cause a mistrial so that the so the witness can't be there for this pretty critical testimony, as I'm finding out later, that it was fairly critical. I don't know its relevance because I don't know the case, but I find out later it's critical nature. And so I tell the attorney, sure, I, I can certainly do a Daubert hearing. and I'll, I'll prepare the slides tonight. That's, that's no problem. I mean, and for listeners, a Daubert hearing is a very special hearing. It's a hearing that is challenging the admissibility, and it goes through the basis for this and whether or not there's science behind it, and if the judge deems that it's not admissible, then the evidence doesn't come in. I don't get to testify to the evidence in the case, and if she deems it can come in, well, then it comes in as it's supposed to. So this is a pretty critical thing that should have been decided, as you said, Eric, possibly, you know, weeks or months or years ago. Years before, yeah. Yeah. All right. So that caught me off guard a little bit. Uh, but, you know, there's also a chance that she's going to deny the hearing because he should have done this before. So my verifier, who can be a little anxious, especially regarding testimony, she's a great examiner, but she gets a little anxious regarding testimony, she is starting, she's starting to freak out a little bit. I'm like, don't worry about it. I don't think you're going to have to be involved in that part of it. And she wasn't, but she was preparing like she could get called and might right. have to go in. So so we get there the next day, and he's late. He's late to the courthouse. He's called in sick during the trial, and now he's late. And he doesn't even apologize or give an excuse. I'm like, what is going on here? This is some of the most unprofessional behavior I have ever seen before. And the judge doesn't even admonish him. So I got a little bit of background from the prosecutor. who, And this is the part I have to be a little careful about here. Apparently, this defense attorney pulls these kinds of tricks in these games. And here's what I didn't know about this and why I think this judge was acting so strange. Because when I got on the stand, and by the way, she grants the Daubert hearing. So we are going to do a Daubert hearing. So she says, yes, I think it's important we do a Daubert hearing. So we're going to have one. I'm going to get on the stand and talk about it. Eric, uh, here's one of the craziest things that you're going to find interesting about this case is um, she granted the Daubert hearing the last day of trial. This is a fry state. (laughs) Now, the legal listeners are going to be laughing at that. A fry state is a different kind of standard for admissibility. It's different than Daubert. That can be another episode. Uh, But 
basically the legal basis for the challenge is not what the state's law is. The state is a fry state. That's a different standard. So she's granting a challenge on the last day of trial that legally the state doesn't recognize. And I'm like, what is going on here? What? I, I mean, I'm just, I'm, okay, I'm out of my yes. head. Yes. Okay. When I get on the stand, here's what the judge says to me. Now, oh, you're going to love this. Uh, she is a kindly-looking older lady. She looks like the Oracle from The Matrix. That's what okay. she looks like, and even sounds like her a little bit. That's kind of what she looked like, kind of a you know, motherly, grandmotherly, matronly, sort of sweet lady. But when I got on the stand, she said, all right, now, sir, you should know that I'm about to retire and this case is my last case. So we need to make sure that nothing happens in this case where effectively she's saying, she's telling me, don't F this up. And her whole thing was, and this is exactly what was happening and me walking into this was, she's trying to retire. She doesn't want this to be a mistrial. She wants this case to be done with and the jurors to decide because as soon as they, they're deciding, she's done. She's off the bench. And if it's a mistrial, I don't I, like. I don't know. Is she supposed to like come back for a mistrial? I wouldn't think so. They move judges around all the time. I know, and and I've had other cases that were either hung, mistrial. They had to redo them, and there was a different judge because that judge retired. So I don't know. She just maybe didn't want to end on a mistrial, or I have no idea. But it, her message was quite clear: don't screw this up. And I'm looking at her, I and mean, it was very kindly and sweet, and you know, I'm looking at her going. But you're allowing these crazy things to happen in your courtroom. <laughs> right. I, he's calling in sick. He's coming in late. He's asking for a Daubert hearing on the last day of trial. You can say no to these things. You, you I, I just, I am, I'm out, out of my skin when this is going on. But I'm like, okay, well, let's get through this Daubert hearing. What do you think happened for the Daubert hearing, Eric? How long do you think it took? Uh, most of the day. All damn day. Yes, it did. <laughs> Yes, it did. So, of course, at the end of the day, she's going to have to rule. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, she kind of turns to me and says, so are you going to be able to testify tomorrow? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I, I, everybody knew this. These attorneys knew this. This was stated well in advance. I had these other things going on. So now she's like, well, what are we going to do? Now, I'm, I, I'm not going to go through all the details of the cross-examination, but I will right. tell you that this attorney really got under my skin because at, at first I thought he was being smart, and I thought he was asking good questions. I realized, no, he was actually not smart, or he's just a plain liar. Either he was so smart, like a fox, that he knew that he was lying when he said these things, and I had to keep correcting him. I had to keep pointing things out. He really got under my skin, so I'm telling you, I made a decision right there. Oh, I'm definitely testifying tomorrow. Uh, oh, I'm, I am. So I told the judge, "Give me ten minutes. Let me make some phone calls and see if I can't adjust my plans for tomorrow." Because what I had the next day was I was supposed to be doing a PhD defense for an oh. examiner in the UK, and so. We had we had put this off forever, and I didn't want to like skip out on her. I needed to be a part of this because it basically she was ready to go the next day. I didn't want to tell her I can't make it because they would have canceled it. And so the judge allowed me to use a room in the courthouse to use the internet to meet with them. So I did it with through the internet and was able to do this and make it all work. I was just 
going to be late. And so instead of being there at nine, I think we started at 11, but I was like, Oh no, I'm, I'm going to make some changes. here. <laughs> I, I, I want to see this through. You have now poked the sleeping lion. <laughs> and I don't, I don't usually let my emotions get involved in these court cases, but his antics were so bizarre. And you could very much tell that the prosecutors didn't really want to do too much to stave that off because they were trying to avoid this mistrial. And so everyone right. was letting defense act like an idiot. And because basically if he didn't get his way, he was going to scream and ask for a mistrial. That was his defense tactic was do as much as I can to get a mistrial. That's what he was playing for, which is – as I have told other defense attorneys this story, and several that I really trust, they said, oh, no, this was a kangaroo court. That was a terrible attorney. That is a terrible strategy. That is not the strategy that, you're, that you want to shoot for like this. And that judge was way off base to allow this to go on in her courtroom. That was just nonsense. This is coming from defense attorneys. They, they did not think this was a clever strategy at all. And some of those, his crazy tactics and things that he was saying that were just so off base. Eric, there's a point where he was talking about the Mayfield case and he had like all the facts wrong about Mayfield. He was also, when he was asking for his Daubert hearing, he was talking about how there has been no research on error rates in the field of latent fingerprints, no articles that they can provide. Right. I mean, it's bizarre. Right. It's right. He just, he, he would. Sounds like he was just making the arguments that would support exactly you know his his kind of side of things without actually double checking to make sure that anything he was no. saying was true. Right. He lied in order to get his Daubert hearing, basically sort of making it like there's no real science to this. He lied throughout all of that, those opening statements about the state of fingerprints to get the Daubert hearing. That's exactly what he did. And so when I got on the stand and when error rates came up, here's what I said. I said, uh, contrary to what Mr. X said during his opening arguments, there are plenty of error rate articles. There's I know that he, um, you know, he was going to cause all this kind of trouble. His name was Mr. X. I mean, what do you expect? Right? <laughs> it was like a super right. villain. And he objected to this. And he, and, and the objection was, and I've never heard this objection before. Uh, objection, uh, could the witness not refer to me anymore during his testimony. I, I looked at them like, that's not a legal objection. That's not, that's not something you can object to. I, I can't, you're saying, I can't say, I didn't say this out loud. I'm just looking at him like, that's, that's the most bizarre objection I've ever heard. He didn't want me referencing his name in my testimony. I, yeah, I, right. I am not a lawyer, but I've never heard, I, I didn't, I don't remember that coming up in, you know, my cousin Vinny or anything. Yeah. And the judge uh, sustained, sustained that. So I was asked to not refer to the defense attorney. What? name. Okay, fine. Sure. Anyway, so we get through all this. The judge, the judge, we find out the next day here. Here's what she says. She allows the fingerprint evidence. Not surprising. So here's what she kept doing. She kept trying to split the baby. She kept mm. trying to give a compromise where both sides would be happy. But of course, what happens in those kinds of compromises is both sides are upset. And she's making bizarre calls instead of just making the right legal call. She's just trying to satisfy everybody so no one's upset. And she's making really strange calls that you're going to hear my examples here. I have very concrete examples of why this makes no sense. 
So she allows the fingerprint evidence, but she does agree that she's going to uh, restrict what I can say about the fingerprint evidence. Like, okay, well, all right, let's see what, what that entails. Another thing I had to do was I had to go through my entire presentation for the Daubert hearing about what I was going to present. Even though we had given that to the attorney four weeks in advance, we had to go through it all, then and there for the judge, as he was objecting to it. He didn't think I, I should be allowed to present it. And his argument for that, and this is true, the argument was he received it 28 days before the testimony. And in that state, the rule is 30 days. So he was arguing he didn't have enough time to properly review and vet my presentation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the judge, the judge wanted to go through it and see what was in it. And even though we made the argument, every image in here, every image in here is actually in my report, except for the images with the rainbow ridges showing the palm prints. And that became the big thing is, well, could he show these? And of course, we were arguing, and I was saying as even during my testimony, that it's pretty typical that examiners are allowed to make demonstrative exhibits for report. You don't have to publish them to jurors, but it's okay to make demonstrative exhibits. Right. And, and just simply allow me to show the jurors this, but it's not going back with them in, in, the, in the room. That happens all the time in cases. She didn't allow the rainbow images because they weren't in my report. So she basically doesn't let me have a chart. So she doesn't let me effectively have my digital chart. She didn't allow the rainbow ridges. She allowed me to show my gyro images. So I could show the gyro because that's in my report. Right. Here's the best part, Eric. I could show my gyro images, but I couldn't show the color orange. Because, wait, okay. <laughs> letting, you, letting you chew on that for a moment. So she, she didn't want... Orange is the ones that you know you add on during the comparison phase, not analysis. Correct, and they're in my report. They're in the report. So nope. then they're in my report. So her here's her reasoning. Okay. Seems like that might be a little biasing to jurors. <sighs> yeah, yep, that's what I'm dealing with. So the attorney comes back to me and he okay. says. Well, can you take the orange out? Now, remember what's in my report are basically JPEGs, and what's in right. my PowerPoint are basically JPEGs. And I'm like, absolutely not. Here's what we're doing. And at this point, again, you have poked the, the lion, and now I'm pissed. I'm like, okay, here's what we're doing. Um, I'm not going to show those images. And even though I'm all about showing the data, uh, I have tried to show the data. We're not going to show those. What you're going to do is we're going to show the data during my analysis because I can't take the orange out of my comparison images. We're going to show all the points I saw during the latent print. You're going to ask me one very important question now. Did you find all those points in the palm prints of the defendant? Yes, I did and more. Done. That's what we're doing. That's exactly what we did. There you go. <laughs> Fine. You don't want me to show the basis? You don't want me to sh Fine. I don't care. Again, I don't normally get emotional like this in a case, but I am so <laughs> irritated at this BS. But now I'm like, fine. All right. Here's what we're doing. I'm I'm going to get up there and go, here's my opinion. Here, uh, I'm, I'm not going to show you my data. I'm, I'm just going to. The judge isn't letting me show them this because she's trying to split the baby. And it's a ridiculous right. ruling, not based on any legal precedent, anything at all, anything that could be cited. It's, it was nonsense. Gets better. I'm not done. Oh boy. <laughs> it it gets worse and better. <laughs> so I I described to them, you know, my entire process. Now when it came to the opinion, 
the judge had ruled that she was going to allow the fingerprint evidence, but she was not going to let me use the term identification because defense had argued that the term identification has been effectively outlawed in the field of fingerprints. And I said, you know, absolutely, that's not true, not in any way, shape, or form. And he had cited from uh, one report basically saying, you know, the issue that's the AAAS report. Oh, and right. for whatever reason, the judge took that as authoritative. Again, she's splitting the baby here. She's just trying to compromise and says, well, do you need to use the term identification? No, I don't. So prosecution had asked me, here's what you wrote in your report. He said, you found extremely strong support for the proposition that the latent print one and the palm, right palm print of the defendant are from the same source. Can you say that during your testimony? Can you define that as an identification? Like, sure, no, that's exactly the definition of identification. Yeah, sure, that's exactly what I can use. What I didn't catch, though, when he had asked me this was, and I didn't realize this, that at no point could I ever use the word identification. I thought they just wanted me to define identification that way. So when we get to that part of the testimony, the prosecutor says, and now let's take a look at your conclusion. And he looks down because he has to read it off the report, and he sort of mumbles it just a little bit. I mean, it, it wasn't real clear. I knew what he was saying, but I was watching the jurors at this point because I knew it was a little critical. I'm watching them, and he says, and Dr. Langenberg, was it your conclusion that you found extremely strong support with the latent print one uh, and the uh, left palm print of the defendant in this case? Uh, yes, uh, that was my conclusion. No further questions. And I was like, what just happened? I am stunned looking at him. <sighs> Do we not get to explain that's, not, that's an identification? Do we not? The jurors don't even realize. What we just said. I'm watching them. They were clearly not aware. That was my opinion that there's the, that's the punchline. And it was just gone right over their head. And then no further questions. And then guess what happens? We break for lunch. <laughs> oh, well. And I'm left sitting there stunned. Now, the judge turns to me and says, you know, in, our, in this state, you are not allowed to talk to anyone about your testimony. Yeah, I'm used to that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, basically, go in that room and sit there sequestered until you're, you're called for. And I'm thinking, I should probably talk to the prosecutors because we're about to do cross. And so I'm getting off the stand and I'm just... And I go up to the prosecutors and go, look, I know we're not supposed to talk. That's what she just said. And I see the defense attorney. I'm like, hey, you need to come over here too. So I call him over. I said, I know not, I'm not allowed to talk, but I think there's an issue that we probably should be discussing real soon before cross-examination happens. And, you know, defense is like, just get away from me. I, we're, not, we're not allowed to talk to you. You're not supposed to be talking to anyone. I'm like, yeah, no, I understand that. But there's going to be an issue real soon here. Because I was already thinking about what was about to happen because I had become accustomed to this guy's style and I knew he was going to ask me the exact same things that he had asked me the day before. Because he did it on voir dire this day and his questions didn't change. Even when I corrected him the day before, he was asking the exact same questions. So I had already anticipated what was going to happen. So I sat there in that room for an hour and a half just fuming and I, I wanted to say something to the judge. I wanted to go before the jurors come back, look, Your Honor. I wanted to sort of say to her, 
this is why you have a Daubert hearing before a trial, because we shouldn't be doing this on the fly. This is really terrible, and this is bad for me giving evidence. This is bad for the prosecutor. This is bad for everyone. If we had known the rules going into this, we could have been properly prepared. That's why you do this in advance. You don't do this mid-trial. And I was just so upset at her and everyone else in this courtroom. I kind of went, all right, calm down, Glenn. Just calm down. And I said, you know what? This is no longer on me, and I'm going to let this go. I am just going to let this go because I've done the best I could. I've done my job, and this is out of my hands. This is a kangaroo court, and I've got nothing else I can do here. And by the way, I, I asked myself this question. If I had been hired by defense, if I was giving defense testimony and this was going on, the prosecution was doing all this, would I have done the same? Would I have felt the same way? Would I have said the same thing to the judge? Or was this because I was trying in some way to communicate to the jurors that they're being sort of bamboozled here a little bit, you know, by all of this? And I just went, you know what? This is, just isn't my place. I need to be more neutral in this. I'm just going to let all this go. And I know what's going to happen when we come back from lunch. And I'm just going to let it happen. I am going to let it happen because it's out of my hands. That's where I was. Have you ever had that moment on the stand, Eric, where you feel like you're still yes. getting sucked into the drama and you got to find a way out of it? That's another important thing that you know, people should be aware of getting into this field is you have to be able to not care in a way, right? So, I mean, you have to, you have to care enough to be invested in the, in the job and do good work, but you also have to, to not let the things that you can't control affect you. That's what this was. Yeah. There's lots of things you can't control that are kind of closer to you, like, you know, lab policies and, and, you know, coworkers and bosses and stuff. But by the time it gets to court, that is so far away from anything that you can have any control over Yeah, that it's much healthier to go in with this kind of detached attitude of, this is what I did. I'm going to tell them what I did to the best of my ability. And I recognize I am extremely limited because I can only answer questions. If they don't ask, if they just never get around to asking what my conclusion was, I have no way to, to tell anybody because I can only answer the questions they ask, it, be, accepting that. Again, I, I sort of know, uh, maybe it's my background, I have a little more legal background, so I understand a lot of these things and realizing that she is making terrible legal decisions, that there's just no basis for what she's saying. Now, again, when I talk to other attorneys, they will laugh at this and go, oh, Glenn, Oh, Glenn, you, you, you poor innocent. Sweet summer child. Welcome to, our, welcome to our world. We deal with this every single day. We hear judges make rulings that make no sense. It's completely contrary to precedent and other law. Welcome to our world. Stop your whinging. And yeah, that's what it's all yeah. about. Welcome to what we deal with. Okay. So what happens after lunch? Ah, okay. So, <laughs> so we come back from lunch. <laughs> and we get on the stand, and now it's cross-examination. And all these questions are ones I had heard during the Daubert hearing, so he sort of knew sure. exactly where he was going. And, and pretty quickly, he gets to Mayfield. And he says, and in Mayfield, there was the FBI, yes, they made an error. Uh, so isn't it true that the FBI, you know, three of these examiners made an erroneous identification? And I looked at him and said, an erroneous what? Identification. And I just looked at them like, what conclusion is that? I don't, uh, that's, a, that's not a conclusion that we've discussed yet in this case. 
And now mm. I can see his look on his face, all these error rate data, everything about erroneous identifications, and all these things are, well, okay, remember, you're the one that didn't want me to talk about the word identification. We've not defined what that word is. I don't know what you're talking about. And I just gave him a look like, yeah, that's why we're here now. That's why we're here. So, the, I mean, did he proceed through asking those questions about identification? Well, d did they uh, uh, wrong wrongly uh, say it was a match and, it, and he's trying to find the words and like trying to go and I'm not helping him. I am not. I have, I have consigned myself. I'm not going to help you at all. I'm going to watch you now struggle through all of this. I have no motivation to help you. And so his questions came out very strange. And every time he even got close to the word identification, and you know, even when he, even at some point, he would keep saying he used the term identification multiple times. And so in this case, when you identified my client's print, and I just looked at him and went, I, "I'm sorry, I." I what did you say I did in this case? I, I, I'm not sure that was actually my testimony. He basically landed in his own trap that he had created here. And so I refuse now at this point to use the word ID or erroneous ID or anything around ID, which... Wow. His, yeah, well, that's where we were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. The very nerdy version of subreddit uh, Petty Revenge. Uh, <laughs> yes. yes. Here, but... Uh, but it's exactly what I wanted to warn him about before yeah. trial was, if I can't say the word ID, we're not going to define it. Because I thought when he asked me the definition, extremely strong support, et cetera, et cetera, we were then, he was going, the prosecutor was then going to say, and is that the definition of the term identification? Yes, it is. And then we would be fine. Mm. But because that term was now outlawed for the prosecution, Every time he used the word identification, prosecution objected, and they went up to the bench and had a sidebar where they're like, hey, remember that was your ruling. We can't use that term. He keeps using that term. We're not going to have a mistrial over this. And so now they're arguing about that every time he uses that term. In the end, he started getting very frustrated with all this testimony. I kept correcting him. He, he would try to jump in in my testimony, not let me finish my answer. And I would just keep talking right over him and louder and louder because I cannot stand when attorneys do this. And they weren't like run-on answers, but no, no, you ask me a question and I'm not going to be polite anymore. I'm going to answer that question. I'm going to keep it short. I am going to answer it. If you don't like my answer, you don't get to cut me off 10 words into my answer. I'm going to answer that. And and he was getting admonished for, again, trying to talk over the witness, for, you know, basically for his actions. And I was just, I wasn't having it. And in the end, I was able to get out what I needed to say. I think the jurors understood through some redirect and some other, I think they got, I think they got the point because prosecution said, and all those features you found that you saw in the announcement, you found them in the known print. They were all there in correspondence. Right. Yes. And, yeah, and we just kept coming back to that and this extremely strong support. Yep. Now, unfortunately, because I was sequestered the entire time and the verifier was sequestered the entire time, when I got off the stand during my lunch break, I said, hey, someone needs to let the verifier know about this identification issue. This is going to be pretty <laughs> important. Remember how we we're talking about sometimes that information doesn't make it to other witnesses? Oh, no. Did not make it to her. So... 
she, after I get on the stand, I can't talk to her. I can't say anything at all. Right. My well, assumption is she knows what's been going on. Someone has kept her informed. She gets on the stand, gets qualified in, and at some point she's asked about her conclusion in this case. And, of course, she says, you all know, identified the palm print <laughs> to the defendant. And defense goes nuts. They stop. They pull her off the stand. She has no idea what's going on. All she knows is she has said, I identified it to so-and-so. That's what her conclusion is. Defense objects. They kick the jurors out. They send them back to the jury room. She's dismissed off the stand. She has to go in a little witness room. Defense and prosecution, you know, hey, she didn't know about this. Why didn't she know? She was supposed to know. They're arguing about this. They go and explain to her. You're not supposed to say the word identification. She didn't know any of this. Okay. They ask her the same thing. Can you just say extremely strong support for same source and read what's in the report? Yes, she can do that. She starts going back. They call the jurors in. And this is another bizarre thing. As she's walking to the stand, the judge stops her because she's about to give jury instruction. So she hears the jury instruction. The jury instruction, she's reading from, and we're still not sure what she's reading from. It could have been a critic's paper, like maybe like Simon Cole's paper, or could have been from the NAS report, or maybe even the PCAST report. No one is is sure exactly where it came from, but it was basically along the lines of, and it's been accepted that latent print examiners shall not say to the exclusion of all others. When they talk about an individualization, there's an overstatement, there's no... And she's standing there going... I'm not going to say that. I mean, in her head, she's saying, I'm not going to say that. And right. now she's wondering if she needs to raise her hand to go, Your Honor, I never said that. I, it, you're making it seem like to the jurors that I said that. I never said that. I wasn't going to say that. I wouldn't say that. And she doesn't understand because it feels like basically the judge is telling the jurors she made a mistake. She shouldn't have been saying those things. And her, oh, what she relayed geez. to me was she made it she made it seem like the judge was basically telling the jurors don't don't listen to her whatever she says you should you know maybe discount and she was very confused about why this instruction was even happening it was very strange this was not a legal instruction she was reading from some report or a critic's paper about individualization to exclusion of all others which is not and had not been discussed at all in this case right not the thing going on right so (laughs) that's And Eric, that's the short version. <laughs> there are all these other little moments and these other little things. I, I'm reliving it again, and I'm getting angry thinking about the all these little moments, but that's the short version. In the end, I contacted the, uh, le- the legal assistant uh, like a yeah. week later. I was like, so what happened in the case? We don't know. Jurors are still deliberating. Okay. Another week goes by. They're still deliberating. And I'm like, okay, well, obviously this is a mistrial. This is exactly what he apparently was playing for. What does that mean? On like the last day when the judge said, if you don't decide it's going to be a mistrial, they decided guilty. Okay. On all accounts, guilty. Oh, boy. I'm sure it was a a whole thing. So anyway, that is my craziest testimony, the craziest kangaroo court. And I had no problem switching over, like removing the term identification. Right, But I still wanted to be able to define it. And then I, I saw the practical problems that that created with all the research 
the Mayfield case and all these other places where you start talking about erroneous identifications or identification or um, you know SwigFast or OSAC standards or other things or any of these reports, all of this now became very confusing if you can't use the word identification at all. Because like doing a Daubert hearing ahead of time, right, it, you have the time where you know, there's things written down, right? There's there's motions written and the judge can get involved in asking you questions and you can like respond. And there's time to get that all laid out and to discover any of the potential issues that would come up with all that. Exactly. You know, without having to be like, all right, we got to get this all done and testimony today, people. So some of those things just reminds me of the case from eight years ago now, the Daubert case that I was involved with, where it was, a, the, the latent in the case was a inconclusive with similarities. Um, right. This is before OSAC and, you know, all of the discussions that, where we kind of fine-tuned that, that conclusion. And that's one of the reasons why I, I like support for similarities so much is because of this case where I had an inconclusive, regular inconclusive and inconclusive with similarities. And the judge and the prosecutor and defense were always getting those mixed up because I was using the same word for these two very different conclusions. Very good point. But in part of that, that Daubert thing, one of the rulings that the judge had was actually the exact opposite of what, of what your judge ruled. Um, yes. So it said that they basically, the judge said, you, you can't show any dots because the judge's <laughs> concern in my case was that uh, the jury would count the dots and the, mm. the number would somehow play into things. And I had testified how the number isn't the whole thing. You know, it's part of what we consider, but it's not the whole thing. There's no automatic threshold for an ID at a certain number of points. So the judge kind of heard that. And then you know, in the ruling basically said, all right, don't show any dots of, of any dots at all. So I asked the prosecutor saying, okay, you know, there's some low quality parts of the print. Can I trace out the ridges right. to help, you know, show those to the jurors so they could you know, better see where the ridges go? And the right. judge said, yeah, okay, yes, you can, you can trace the ridges. So I was able <laughs> to show the rainbow, yeah. but, but not <laughs> the dots. Yeah, you're right. That's the exact opposite. The tracing of the ridges was to help the jurors <laughs> see this detail instead of just putting dots on there. Right. But I couldn't present those. Because they weren't in the report. Right, right. Oh, by the way, your episode uh, where you talk about that court case, Eric, is episode 75, by the way, if any listener wants to go back and listen to that interesting experience. Thank you. I was <laughs> I was actually scrolling back and I uh, was having difficulty finding exactly which one it was. But thank you for finding that uh, that number. That's, that is way back in the archives. You, you might have to sign up on Patreon to... Uh, <laughs> to get access to that one well glenn i know we're really long here in this episode but you know what we we don't put out enough episodes as it is so you know and right. the last one was only a half an hour so this is super just size. a double long super size episode I, I just have a short story here about my first time testifying it's a little bit more on the light-hearted side but <laughs> definitely not the emotional response that 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 you've uh, that you've had to experience here but uh so this is when I was still so brand new and working in the Lake Havasu City lab. It's you know, one of the regional labs uh, of the Arizona system. And then going down to testify in the county just south of the county that that, that lab is in. 
and uh, so in in a place called uh, La Paz County, Arizona. Anyway, I was new, so I got to work every priors packet. Uh, so that's when someone is convicted. If they want to aggravate the sentencing phase, you know, they may then bring in prior convictions and to say, okay, this guy's done it before, so he gets a longer sentence this time. And you have to then prove that this is the same guy that got convicted before. So you look at the fingerprint on the previous conviction paperwork and then the current fingerprint now. And then as the, the fingerprint expert, I just go in and say, yep, it's the same guy. And you know, it's supposed to be a nice way to introduce a fingerprint examiner to testimony because it's supposed to be super easy, super simple. You're basically just comparing 10 prints and you, know, you start to get some practice and it's just sentencing, right? The guy's already been convicted. The stakes are not as high. It's it's a good place to start. Yeah, it's what McNamara called antecedents. There you go. That's exactly, exactly. <laughs> I'm sure you guys did the same kind of thing out, out in Minnesota with, with all your new people. No, actually, we don't. It's actually surprising. We really don't. Interesting. Oh, yeah. So because of previous precedents and how the lab system wrote their policies, Everything had to be sent to the lab ahead of time. You know, there's some jurisdictions where they just have latent print examiner just basically go to court and then just that day compare it and then testify to what they what they found. But we're like, no, 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 no. Send us all the stuff. We'll look at it. We got to go do our examination. We have to do our documentation, write a report, get it tech reviewed and admin reviewed. And we got to do the whole thing like it's a regular case. So they send me all the paperwork and... I received these like certified documents and I'm like, huh, this is all convictions from like the eighties seems because usually priors only last so long before right. they're no longer relevant. So I even called the guy up and said, Hey, you sure you guys sent me the right paperwork? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all, you know, just compare it. Okay. So I have to compare it, make my ID, write the report. And, you know, very clearly in the report, it lists off which document I looked at, how they're all dated, you know, very clearly referenced in the report of all this information. So I send that out and, you know, a few weeks or whatever month or so goes by, I finally go into court. You know, first time in court, I got a, I've got a new suit on, I'm feeling good. And, you know, I do the, the background, you know, your experience, the voir dire kind of stuff, and going through then the background of fingerprints, you know, how to compare, just not the full length one, just kind of a shortened version of that, just to, you know, kind of establish the basis for the testimony. Uh, and first, uh, I realized that I'm kind of sitting a little cockeyed in the chair so that I kind of, I'm just like leaning, like not leaning forward, but like more leaning to the side. And I find myself like leaning more and more. And I can even hear myself in my head saying, why are you leaning so much? Like sit up straight, but I, I, my body just won't listen. It's just a weird, I don't know, just nerves of first time testifying. Maybe <laughs> I'm just you know, s slowly like leaning and leaning more and more to the left. <laughs> what finally kind of like get, takes me out of it is after all that background, they hand me the, uh, the envelope uh, with the evidence in it and, and ask, do you recognize this document? So I take the document out of the envelope and as I'm taking it out, I notice that I don't see my initials on the outer envelope, which is the first kind of clue. Right. Because <laughs> usually you initial any kind of packaging that, sh that you get when you return it. So I take it out and this is always a thing I'm very careful. I'm never an automatic answer with, do you recognize this? I always 
do something to make sure that I, like I'm checking to make sure that I am actually recognizing it. Eric, just quickly, I had exactly the same thing in, one, <laughs> in my last testimony where it, it was just obligatory, like, and, and you recognize this? And I went, no, I, I don't. This looks different than what I saw. And the attorney looked up in horror at me, and it turned out that he was actually giving me the wrong thing. Uh, but it was exactly like, like you had said. If I had said, oh, yeah, I completely recognize this, and it wasn't. If you had just done that automatically, now you're going to look like a fool right. when it turns out that it's not. It definitely wasn't what you expected. That's actually really good advice to newer yes. examiners. Do not just breeze through that even though the tone of their voice is, and sometimes even quite leading, and, and you recognize this, right? Uh, take a look at it. So that's exactly what I do, right? I, I take out the document, and, and there's this, and this is another thing you have to get used to in testifying. Be okay with a silence, right? If you have to yes. review your notes, or if you have to recognize something, just stop talking and let everything be dead quiet while you do that bad podcasting good courtroom <laughs> exactly you know i think it comes across well to the jury as well is that this person is checking right yeah um, you're being thoughtful yes so look at the cover and i compare it to my report which i'd already had provided and sitting next to me and i'm comparing you know the description and the dates and everything on it and then i just uh look up and say no, and the the, <laughs> you know, the 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 prosecutor is just you know absolutely you know not expecting that answer. And through the follow up, you know, I I had reviewed a different document that you know different you know, dates and charges and and all that stuff, but I I've not looked at this document. So the uh, the prosecutor asks for a brief recess. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the judge looks frustrated and rolling his eyes. The, it's just a small facility. The prosecutor's office was like basically across the hall. So kind of go over there and explain like, this isn't what you guys sent me. Like, this is what you sent me. And I like, do you have this document? We can test, we can talk about the one I did look at. And he's like, well, it's too old. Well, that's kind of what I thought. All right. He then asked, well, can you, can you compare these prints right now? I'm like, no, <laughs> like my, my lab policy specifically, you know, says I, I can't do this. It's not even, you know, there, it doesn't right. cover it. There's a specific line stating that we are not allowed to do that. Eventually get back into court. The, the judge I learned later, I think was a, like a traveling judge. Like the County didn't have enough money to have a full-time <laughs> judge. So he was like, he would come out like once a month, like for a week, once a month to handle these cases. Right. Uh, so he was really annoyed that he was eating up extra time and it was just during sentencing. So basically he was just like, no, it's, it's not in and, and we're just going to move forward and move on to sentencing without this, or without this evidence. Yeah. You know, from that was like, okay, first, when you sit down, <laughs> make sure, make sure you, you're get you're comfortable and you've, you've, you've got a good distance to the microphone and the chair is good and the height is good. And. Like, you know, make sure you're not going to slowly fall over throughout your testimony, <laughs> but, but also check the things and maybe I could have had been more insistent on this doesn't look right ahead of time. You know, still, if, if you review something and they ask you to recognize it and you don't, and I mean, that's, you have to know the choice. You just say, nope, and then see what happens from there. Uh, all right. So that's my, that's yeah. my 
fun little story of my first time testifying and the oh that's that's great and and especially the first time out that that would happen to you i mean (laughs) it's a great you just followed all your procedures you let your training take over and you you know you did exactly what you're you were trained to do and i think that's part of it was that my trainer he constantly would ask just questions like just in the middle of processing he would just throw out a question and a question and a question uh, which was kind of annoying at times but looking back on it you know these kind of weird scenarios that he would sometimes pose then i and my first time out i was put into a weird scenario and and then it was okay then i this is what i have to do because you know we've been over not this exact one but stuff you know i i know what to say and i don't know what the prosecutor or the judge is going to do but but i know what i have to do and and then that was it all right glenn this might be one of our longest ones ever no (laughs) no we'll see we'll see but it was it's fun little story time and i think that uh we don't really get an opportunity as much to to tell these stories and i think you and i in particular since we don't have that office environment anymore um this is kind of our chance to you know to chat in the office (laughs) with colleagues about these weird things that come up and so you know it's it's kind of cathartic in that way too yeah and i'm glad i withheld that one case that last case oh boy what a (laughs) because I have been sitting on it for a while, and I and I needed to sort of distill down to some of the the crazier moments. Like I said, that really was the abridged version. Yeah, there were just so many things that came out of it. I hadn't told the story in a while, and even when I was like sharing it with you and the listeners, yeah, I could feel my temperature rising. Like my shirt was getting sweaty, <laughs> and I was actually—I mean, I was sort of reliving some of those moments. It was a little traumatizing, just because. You're sitting on the stand for two days. I was on the stand for two days and just dealing with this nonsense. I I like a good prepared attorney. I like a good cross. I don't mind those things. I will tend to be helpful to both sides if they're asking good questions. Yeah. And and I I wanted nothing to do with this defense attorney who was just so frustrating. When, when your tactics start to include or seem to start to include show up late, then then that's that doesn't become helpful to the whole process in general. And no one should should uh, should deliberately you know choose the path of uh, you know what'll work here wasting someone's time. Everyone's time. Right, everyone's time. time. I mean, that was the goal was this mistrial. And that, that really, that's really what it felt like. Uh, all right. Well, let's wrap things up. Glenn, uh, you have some classes here coming up. The one thing I'll, I'll tell students if they're interested is that I've got a series of webinars coming out uh, at the end of November and early December. There's one on blood prints. There's one on bias. There's one on conflict resolution and lots of other topics. And you can go to Evolve Forensics. That's www.evolveforensics.com. That's Alice White's website. And you can sign up for those webinars. Still plenty of seats available in those webinars. And you know, in general, uh, for your classes, for the like the full long, not the webinar type classes, but the full length classes, People can just go to your website, eliteforensicservices.com, click on the, the training tab, learn more. All, all your classes are, are listed there. Or they can email me directly at glenn at, and that's G-L-E-N-N, at eliteforensicservices.com. Well, if you have any questions uh, or comments about the show, 
any stories that you're willing to share. Heck, we can, if we get in a few responses, we might be able to put a, together a whole nother episode just reading through other people's stories about court, because I'm sure that lots of people have lots of crazy stories. Oh, and, and attorneys too. We would oh, love yeah, yeah, a little yeah. front. I, I imagine attorneys see, again, I, I expect the reaction is going to be, oh, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's nothing. I, I will see your case and raise you another level of insanity. Sure. Uh, so send us email. Glenn, he's already said his email address. Mine is eric at rayforensics.com. You know, we'd love to hear those. And if if you are okay with us reading them on the show, just make sure you, you say in the email, hey, it's okay if you uh, if you read this on the show. We, we tend to try to be careful and only read you know, emails out that uh, that we <laughs> that we have gotten that message from uh, from the writer. Also, go to our website, doubleloopodcast.com. We've got uh, all the new episodes there, links to all our social media stuff, uh, links to our store, which we're updating here soon, with uh, all sorts of new uh, new merchandise, funny t-shirts and mugs and uh, you know other cool stuff. And I'll be here at a few conferences. So I'm not sure when this will get published, but you know over the next uh, couple months, I'll be at the Idemia Users Conference. Uh, the New England Division Conference, uh, Tri-Division Conference between um, Tennessee, North Carolina, and Georgia, and then also the Florida Division Conference. So, uh, so lots of travel and lots of getting out there and seeing uh, seeing people in different parts of the country, especially on the on the East Coast. And then uh, remember the uh, the opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And with that, we'll close out and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a good week.